how Jim Packer defines a covenant. A covenant in the Bible is a solemn agreement, negotiated or imposed, perhaps from one side, that binds both parties to each other in permanent, defined relationships with specific promises, claims, and obligations to both sides. Covenants in Scripture are solemn agreements, negotiated or imposed from one side, that bind both parties to each other in permanent, defined relationships with specific promises, claims, and obligations that each must have to the other. Now, in a sense, that is why marriage is a covenant. That is something, ideally, that is voluntarily entered into. A solemn agreement is made, and there are promises, claims, and obligations to your spouse if you're married. Now, God makes covenants rather a lot. And in fact, he made a few covenants before we come to Abraham. He'd actually made one with Adam in Eden. He made one with Noah. And they're very simple covenants. But when we come to Abram, we get new details that reveal God's purposes and commitments. And they had an impact on Abram personally, as well as we will see. And it all revolves around God's promises. So let's start by looking at Genesis 12, 1-9. And I want you to answer this question. If you look at the map on the screen, you see that actually Abram, as he began as, made a pretty epic journey. Ur and Babylon, right down there in what is now Iraq, he traveled all the way long before cars and anything else like that on foot, on animals, traveled all the way with his entire entourage, all the way down, ended up in Egypt and went back to what is now Palestine. Now, what on earth would cause Abram to do this? It's absolutely bonkers. Why would he make this crazy journey? I mean, it was dangerous, quite apart from anything else, as well as long. Have a look through Genesis 12, 1 to 9, and see if you can work out what it is that um, prompts Abram to do this crazy thing. The essence of why Abram does this is promise, isn't it? God has made a promise, a number of promises. And so he goes. What does he promise? Well, he promises a great nation, a land that he will show them. He promises his blessing. You could argue that actually his blessing is, in one way, uh, manifested by his loving law. I mean, wasn't it a blessing to be told not to eat from that tree in the garden? And what a disaster when that blessing was rejected. Actually, when God tells us certain things are not good, he does it for our blessing, doesn't he? He has our best interests at heart. And then, strikingly, he says, look, you're going to be a blessing to all peoples. Now, that's not surprising. We've been thinking in terms of global terms in Genesis 1 to 11. It's not specific to any particular nation. It's been talking about humanity. Suddenly we home in right in on this individual, but still God has the big picture in mind, the nations. So right from the beginning, Abraham is promised that whatever God does through him will be a blessing to the world. He's the global God. He made the world. Shouldn't be surprised at all by that. And then the various other passages that corroborate and develop these promises in chapter 15, 16, and 17. These early chapters, God is basically re-emphasizing these great promises. So, you know, the great nation, we find well, there'll be countless offspring like the stars. You can't count the stars. You won't be able to count this family. 
And God's going to make this an everlasting covenant, whatever that means. So this is an agreement that will be binding for eternity. And then the land is actually defined in a bit more clarity in chapter 17, the whole land of Canaan. God's rule, his blessing, I will be their God. They'll be his people. I'll be your God. And I'll make you the father of many nations. Do you see? It is very global. Yes, it is about one nation. But this one nation is there for all nations. Right from the beginning. And God made certain promises to Abraham. And the amazing thing is that against all the odds, Abraham said, okay, I'll do it. And the bottom line is that he could take God at his word. Now, if I said to you, meet me at Oxford Circus Tube tomorrow at, I don't know, 2.15, and you trusted me, and I think some of you do, then you will meet me at Oxford Circus Tube at 2.15, won't you? If you get there and find that I don't turn up without any excuses, you're going to be pretty reluctant to do that again, aren't you? You say, well, I can't trust him. I can't take him at his word, so I'm not going. But God has said, go, and all this will happen. Do you trust me? And Abraham did. That's why he went. And that is why faith is essential, is fundamental. It's trusting God to keep his promises. That is why he is commended. That is why he's a hero. He's not a great man. He did some pretty terrible things. Terrible things. But he's a hero because he trusted God to keep his promises. It's one of the best definitions of faith I've ever heard. Trusting God to keep his promises. That's all you need. This is a classic Sunday school definition, isn't it? But it stands the test of time and experience. Trusting God to keep his promises. Don't you think that that is what kept Abraham going? And what we find in the the, the next uh, few chapters is that God keeps his promises in the face of absolutely every possible hurdle and impediment that it could be. And to begin with, of course, things start very small, but the important thing is they start seems very unlikely and very unpromising. Genesis 21, Abraham and Sarah given a son. Now that in itself is extraordinary. They're both old, far too old, and she's infertile. They cannot have children. And inevitably, Abraham thinks, oh, well, look, this is hopeless. So he takes things into his own hands and sleeps with a save girl because he thinks, yeah, this is ridiculous. And who wouldn't? We can't suddenly become parents. But that's not the way to do it. The way to do it is to trust God to keep his promises. God said that he would make them a family. Can you imagine if Abraham was at a dinner party? You, you go around and say, oh, how, how do you do? I'm X, Y, Z, and, and, and who are you? And he says, uh, my name is Father of Many Nations. Oh, that's an interesting name. So how many children have you got? None. Uh, well, it's a bit of a misnomer, isn't it? I mean, it's one thing you know, to be Father of Many Nations with one or two kids, but to have none... You've got to be kidding. But eventually God provides. And they do have a family. A family of three. Isaac. Then in the next story, you find that something similar happens. Isaac and Rebecca have twins again after the possibility of, of childlessness. So yeah, I mean, they managed to get over the first generation hurdle. But then there's the same problem in the next generation. But God answers prayer. They have twins. Jacob and Esau. Then in Genesis 27... Things get really odd because the mantle, the inheritance, if you like, is passed to the younger twin as a result of lies and deception. Jacob means deceiver. I guess he was just living up to his name, poor chap. And he's blessed, clearly not on the basis of merit or because he deserved it more. He's a nasty piece of work. 
sometimes the people God chooses to use are really not the sort of people you want to invite to supper. And yet it is Jacob who is the one who wrestles with God and is the one after whom this great nation is named, Israel. It's interesting, isn't it? The nation isn't named Abraham. That would be a much more sensible name. They're called Israel, who wrestles with God. God can and does use sinners and some pretty horrible ones. And then Genesis 30, you find that uh, Joseph, the next generation, he's the second youngest of 12 brothers, born as a result again of divine intervention. Rachel, his mother, was infertile, but he is rejected by his brothers and thrown into a pit and then sold into slavery. And yet he's the one God uses. It's bizarre, isn't it? God protects him for a purpose. Now, by the time you get to the end of Genesis, you find that there is a pretty large family, a family of um, 70. That's not bad going, is it? In just a handful of generations, when there seems so much stacked against it. Remarkable. But it hardly constitutes a nation, does it? Abraham, what's your name? Father of many nations. Hmm. 70 people. Hmm. And what's more, the book of Genesis ends in the wrong place. Egypt. God had said, I'll give you this land. But what are they doing down there? Well, the story of Joseph explains how they got down there. And the key to the whole story is in the last chapter of Genesis. Genesis 50. Just turn to that. Now, you can tell we're beginning to make progress now, aren't we? Joseph said to his brothers, Genesis 50, verse 20, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God is sovereign. Human sin will not thwart his plans. That's one of the bottom lines of the story of Joseph. You know, the brothers did some terrible things. The slave traders did some terrible things. Potiphar and his wife did some terrible things. And uh, the guys that uh, he trusted, Joseph trusted in prison, the, the, the baker and the, uh, the cupbearer did some pretty terrible things. And as he's sort of stuck there in this horrible prison for years on end... There would have been days, don't you think, when he thought, what on earth is going on? And yet God had made promises to him in dreams. And he was trusting God to keep his promises. And the time would come when he'd be the right man in exactly the right place to save many lives. Because actually, as we look back in retrospect, we can see that it was because of God placing Joseph there that actually this new nation that was being formed with just 70 people was protected. There was no food in Canaan. But there was plenty in Egypt directly as a result of what uh, Joseph had done. And it was God's way of making sure this family didn't die out. You intended to harm me, Joseph says to his brothers. And that's right. But God at the same time intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives, including yours. Fascinating, isn't it? And there's a template there for how God always works. And we'll see that very clearly this afternoon. God is sovereign. Human sin will not thwart God's plans. He will overrule and bring about his purposes, namely restoring his kingdom. So as we reach the end of Genesis, we have a vision of a sovereign God with a mission. There's clearly much to come. But the hopes for the future have clearly been established. The hunt for the serpent crusher is on. Was it Abraham? Well, no, he was a victim and a perpetrator of sin just as much as anybody else. Was it Jacob? No, look at what a rogue he was. He was part of the problem, just as much as God's means to solving it. Was it Joseph? Well, he was quite a good guy, but even he died. But we see the beginnings of a promised kingdom being established. Abraham and his family, the promised land. They're not in the land yet. It's promised. That's the whole point, isn't it? The promised land. 
And God's rule is summarized by his covenant. In other words, his sovereign relationship with them. He was the one who decided to make a covenant. He made some promises and he said, are you in? And Abraham said, yes, okay, I'm in. And off he toddled the story so far. Okay, now you have to flick back to Exodus. God's kingdom's partial fulfillment. At the start of Exodus, things are not looking hot. If you remember, when Joseph's family came to see him, they were 70 descendants of Abraham. Within several generations, the situation is very different. There have been several pharaohs or kings uh, who did not know about Moses, and it gets very grim. Notice how God reacts to this too. Verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now, what do you notice there? Do you see the grounds on which God will act are derived from the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? In other words, this is the same story. It's just the next installment. At one level, you know, sort of cross out the book headings and so on. Uh, this is just the, the next chapter, if you like. It's not a completely different book. Incidentally, um, if you've not seen the DreamWorks cartoon, Prince of Egypt, I strongly recommend it. I think it's one of those few occasions when one can say that they've really done justice in many ways, not completely inevitably, but in many ways to what the Bible has in this story. And I think there's some remarkable moments in it. I think... Um, Obviously, you know, there's sort of um, artistic license here and there and so on. But I think actually it's remarkably accurate. And it gives you a sense of the story. Exodus is one of the most dramatic books in the Bible. It's a fantastic book. And I think this film really does convey something of that. Now, what happens? What does God do to do something about this slavery, this grim situation? Chapter 3, he reveals himself. He's sovereign. He organizes events to bring it about that his man is in the right place at the right time. And uh, basically, Exodus uh, 1 and 2 are just full of real irony and humor. Some of it's pretty dark. You know, you have Pharaoh ordering uh, the Israelite uh, baby boys to be thrown in the river. So what does God do? He does the same thing. Except the baby boy he's using and bringing up is thrown into the river in a basket. And where does he end up? Well, he actually gets adopted into the Pharaoh's family. I mean, what a joke is that? A whole string of things uh, occur like that. But the interesting thing is that Moses, and this is where the Prince of Egypt film is speculative, but it's not unreasonable. Moses somehow begins to understand his heritage, presumably in large part because of his mother who becomes his nanny. Again, that's God in control, isn't it? You know, that's quite cool to have your own mum as your nanny. But he begins to understand something of his culture, and he takes things into his own hands, doesn't he? He kills an Egyptian who's cruelly treating an Israelite slave. And as a result, he has to do a runner, because that's not the way it's going to happen. So in a sense, he sees the problem, but he hasn't a clue how, uh, what the solution is yet. Well, God's got to show him. And years later, we mustn't forget that this is decades later, after he's been out of Egypt for decades and being, you know, looking after sheep and goats in the desert and stuff, it's a, you know, a million miles away from the Pharaoh court. Suddenly, after all these years, because God's timing isn't quite what we would like always, 
God confronts Moses at the burning bush, or rather it should be called the non-burning bush because that's the whole point. It looks as though it's burning, but it doesn't. But the bush isn't the focus. The key focus is the God who speaks. You can't see him, but he speaks. That's what matters. And in verse 7, he says of chapter 3 that he hears the cries of his people and he renews his commitment to those promises. He's not forgotten them, even though it's taken decades to do something about it. Well, he knows what he's doing. But Moses wants to know who he's talking to. That's a perfectly reasonable thing, isn't it? You know, if someone rings you up on the phone and they say, hi, can I come round? You say, well, who is this? Moses says, who, who am I talking to here? Verse 14, I am who I am. That's what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me. Great, that doesn't really get you very far, does it? What does that mean? Verse 16, go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, Yahweh, I am who I am, the Lord in capital letters, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob appeared to me and said, I've watched over you and have seen what has been done unto you in Egypt and I've promised to bring you up out of misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, a land flowing with milk and honey. God has revealed his name which is a pretty odd thing, a pretty odd name, we'll come back to that, but revealing your name is a sign of relationship, isn't it? You can't look at me and say, mm, I know, you're a, yes, you're a Mark. doesn't work like that, does it? To know my name, I have to tell you my name. The fact that you're wearing a badge is, is you know, saving a bit of time so that you don't have to keep doing it, but it's still the same principle, isn't it? So that I can know who you are and you can know who I am. Knowing someone's name is the first step in relationship. It'd be pretty odd, you know, if you asked, uh, what's your wife's name? I'd say, oh, I don't know. That would be quite odd, don't you think? And God says, my name is I am. I am who I am. Or in its shorthand version, just Yahweh or Jehovah. Same word, which just uh, means I am. And you can translate it, I will be who I will be. It speaks of God's absolute self-sufficiency and his eternity. His dependability. He is constant. That is why he's described as faithful. It's all there in his name. He's faithful because he's a rock. I am who I am and I'm not going to change. So if I say something today, I'll still mean it tomorrow. So when I make a promise, I'm going to keep it. It's there in my name. That's actually why it's not just because of the relationship that the Israelites have with him that they want to know the name. It's actually crucial to their being able to hang in there. If faith is trusting God to keep his promises, God's name is the grounds on which we can. Because of who he is. Now, from now on in the Old Testament, every time you see the word Lord spelled with capital letters, in most modern translations, including the NIV and the ESV and various others, it is the translator's way of letting you know that this is God's revealed name, Yahweh. And the reason is that the Jews held that the word Yahweh was so holy that you couldn't say it. And so they would find an alternative. They would say Adonai, which just means Lord, as a way of avoiding it, having to say it. But in the text, it was there, so they knew that it was there. And the English is just following the same pattern. And you can see it there in verse 16. So every time now you see the word Lord in capital letters, a bell should go off in your mind. You say, ah, covenant, the God who revealed himself. This is the God who spoke to Moses. And Yahweh is the one who first promised a serpent crusher, isn't he? But there's a problem. His people are in Egypt and they're enslaved by a king who himself was regarded as divine. And so there's a conflict that is inevitable, isn't it? You have Yahweh saying he's the only God. You have Pharaoh claiming to be a God as well. Who do you think is going to win? Chapter 3, verse 18, the elders of Israel will listen to you 
Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to, say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let's take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to Yahweh, our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I'll stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders I'll perform among them. And after that, he'll let you go. He won't let you go because he's proud. Because his authority as a divine ruler is being challenged. And he's standing his ground. And we see that in the resulting story. Chapters 3 to 11 you have divine Yahweh taking on divine Pharaoh, or supposedly divine Pharaoh. And what is interesting is that the plagues attack different worldview beliefs of the Egyptians. And in many ways, you, may, you know, you've been to the British Museum or whatever, and you've seen different pictures of the Egyptian gods, you know, sort of crocodile heads and bird heads and all this sort of stuff. And the river Nile itself was regarded as divine. Well, what you see in each of the plagues is God asserting his authority over each of the things they worshipped, proving that he is the God of sovereignty over the creation. So that's why the river turns to blood, because God does it. They can appeal to, they can pray to the river Nile all they like, but it's not going to stop it being blood. Do you see? But in the midst of this, God has a clear purpose, is to rescue the people, to bring them to the point where they make a three-day journey and worship him. And so this is the pattern of redemption. God redeems his people. And the next few chapters are mind-blowing. We could spend all day just thinking about them. And it's very influential. They set a pattern for the rest of the Bible, and especially for the New Testament. But I think that's a crucial way of understanding it. These are foreshadowings. These are, these are showing the ways in which God worked to help us understand the ultimate way in which God will work. Just to be clear, redemption actually had specific connotations in slavery. If you redeem a slave, you buy back his or her freedom. And God has a clear purpose in redeeming his people to make them free, as we'll see. And there are two key ways in which he does this. The first is salvation that I call by substitution. And the Passover marked the last of God's rescue and the last of the, the start of God's rescue and the last of the ten plagues. So what was the need for redemption? Chapter 12, verse 12. On that night, I'll pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I'll bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am Yahweh. I am who I am. What is the need? Well, the need is more rather the threat that, that someone needs rescuing from. The threat is that God will come and strike down every firstborn. Yahweh was going to defeat the gods of Egypt once and for all. And the thing is, you see, Pharaoh's son himself was one of them. He was regarded as divine as well. And even though Israel themselves were the ones enslaved, they were not safe in the presence of a holy God. And that is why every single household in Egypt will face the firstborn dying. Every household, including Israel, the Israelites. So the need for rescue or protection for God's people as well as for anybody else is very clear. God himself is a threat to them, which is pretty bizarre. We'll unpack that. So how is this going to happen? What are the means of redemption? Well, verse 13, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I'll pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike you. Uh, strike Egypt. God sees blood and passes over 
Those who trust God will be saved. That's the point. Do you see how this works? God says, kill an animal, paint its blood on your doorframe. And as far as I know, that is not standard operating procedure in any culture that I've come across. You know, it's not some sort of new design thing or, you know, you're not going to find Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen or whatever saying this is a really good new design tip. Cut an animal's throat and paint the blood on your door. No, there's a specific purpose. It is an odd thing to do, but in a sense, that's the whole point. You're only going to do it if you take God at his word. Oh, well, if it's God who tells me to do that, well, maybe I should. If it was Mark Menel who told me to paint blood on my doorframe, then I'm going to think, well, why is he telling me to do this? But if God tells you to do it, you take him at his word. So actually, the act of painting the blood is a sign of faith, isn't it? Saying, I trust God. Okay, I don't necessarily fully understand why I've got to do this. But if he says I've got to, then I'll do it. And what will happen is that he will see the blood and then know that you trust him. It's not because the blood is magical. This isn't some magical potion or some cunning device. No, this is a sign of trust, of faith. And do you see how the protection has come? It's come from a substitute, albeit an animal substitute. One death in place of another. The lamb instead of a firstborn son. How many people here are the oldest son? Not that many, but it's interesting. Just think about it. If you're the firstborn son, how do you think you'd be feeling that day? Yeah, there's Dad sitting after lunch with the paper. You know, the sort of Memphis Times or something. Dad, have you done it yet? Don't worry, I'll, I'll get round to it. Dad, look, it's just tied up at the back. Have you done it yet? Yeah, okay, let, let me just finish the crossword and the Sudoku. Yeah, I'll do it. Dad, my life depends on this. Can you imagine the relief on seeing, yeah, the blood painted on the door? About time, Dad. really matters. Because we're dealing with the holy God, who is the sovereign God, who is the great I am, the one who is consistent and keeps his word. And if he says you've got to do this, you jolly well do it. Not just because of the threat, but also because you trust him. It's only once the blood's on the door that you know you're safe and God passes over. What is the result? Verse 27, it is the Passover sacrifice to Yahweh who passed over the houses of the Israelites and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians and the people bowed and worshipped him. That is the result. Homes were spared from grief and guilt and the result was that Pharaoh sent them away. He'd had enough. Notice the result of that. The people worship Yahweh, the Lord. He was the one who pulled it off. And that night, Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians, verse 30, during the night there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Gizrites. Go, worship Yahweh as you've requested. Take your flocks and herds as you've said, and go. Oh, and bless me. You see the pattern. They are rescued from slavery for worship. That is freedom. In the West, we think freedom is freedom from oppression or somebody else telling me what to do to the freedom of me being able to do what I want. That's not what the Bible defines freedom as. Freedom is actually being able to live for God as we should. The service of God is perfect freedom. And the pattern is established there very clearly in Exodus. Out of slavery into not DIY religion but knowing and worshipping and loving and serving God freely. But that's not the whole story. There's another conquest, there's another salvation, and it's salvation by conquest. Things seem to be going swimmingly so far, don't they? The people do what they're told. And in the midst of this success, though, there are hints of what is to come. God shows in Exodus 13 that he anticipates how fickle the people are. So God leads them out of Egypt on a less than direct route. <laughs> 
He's taking them to Mount Sinai first, and that's significant because that's where the burning bush was. And God has said to Moses in Exodus 3, I'm going to bring the people here, and so he does. The route he takes involves uh, going across water, which is a pretty odd thing to do. But again, it shows that God is doing things his way. Chapter 14, Moses stretched his hand out of the sea, and all that night the Lord Yahweh drove the sea back with a strong east wind. The waters were divided. The Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on either right and the left. I think the way that film, again, Prince of Egypt, does the Passover and does the crossing of the sea are just quite spectacular. What I think is so brilliant is that it gets across the creepiness and the weirdness of it all. It is so not normal. Well, of course it isn't. This isn't an everyday thing. But it sends shivers down your spine, and so it should. And then the Egyptians follow. Pharaoh goes back on his mind and um, comes after God's people, but God is sovereign, and God conquers them through forces of nature, which is quite ironic because they had worshipped these forces of nature. And yet again, he asserts that he alone is the sovereign God over all the world. No human being is a match for him. We find after that that God continues to lead and provide for the people on their journey uh, to Sinai and after. And he provides food in the form of manna. Does anyone know what manna means? Means watsits. You know those crisps, watsits? Well, in a sense, that's what manna means. It means, what is this? That's what manna means. It's something, you know, I've never seen this before. I don't know what to call it, so I'm going to call it, what do you call it? But God provides it, and they begin to grumble a bit. He provides water in the desert, and they grumble a bit, and he provides them quails. That's pretty interesting, but they grumble a bit. And it simply shows that God is even more gracious than he needed to be and that he had proved himself before. Now, why does God do it all like this, with the Passover, crossing of the sea, and then taking them on this mad journey? Why does he do it like this? Well, it's simple to prove that he was the one who can take the credit, no one else. Yeah, Moses was a sort of spokesman and a figurehead, but Moses couldn't take credit for it, far from it. It would be a rescue to be remembered for generations and for eternity. What happens at Sinai? Covenant life is revealed. What does it mean to live in the covenant? I guess Abraham had very little idea of what was to come when God first made those promises. God revealed more and more as he acted in history to fulfill his promises. And you can trust the promises without necessarily knowing how they're going to come about. Just as Abraham and Sarah did promise to have a child. You trust the one who makes the promises, not necessarily knowing how he's going to pull it off. When we get to, to Moses, we find there's a great deal more that God has up his sleeve. It's like walking in a mountain range um, or climbing in the hills, you know, and you, you've probably had that experience where you, you think you've got to the top and then you realize it was a full summit. You realize, oh, no, there are a few hundred more meters to come. Well, the Bible's a bit like that. It keeps, you keep getting to a pinnacle and you think, oh, I've got there, and then you suddenly look up. Well, in this covenant life, what's revealed? Well, it's been hinted at in Genesis 3 with the non-burning bush and the whole business of Moses having to take off his shoes and stand clear. But it gets developed in 19 and 20. The idea that God is holy. Now that is a word that has all kinds of meanings. Don't go to your Oxford English Dictionary to find out what that is. Bible words have Bible meanings. What does it mean for God to be holy? Well, when the people get to Mount Sinai, or just for clarification, it's sometimes called Mount Horeb, it's the same place, they find that God's presence is terrifying. Is terrifying. 
There's smoke, there's fire, there's a lot of noise, there's all kinds of commotion. And God says in chapter 19, verse 12, put limits for the people around the mountain. Tell them, be careful that you do not go up to the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Here, touching does matter. And death is the result. Now, we don't really know at this stage in the Bible what it means for God to be holy, but we do know this. God is unapproachable because of it. It's for their own safety. It is a blessing that God gives them these rules, isn't it? It's because he wants them to live, not die. That's why he tells them this. And yet the covenant promise entailed Israel being Yahweh's people and Yahweh being Israel's God and dwelling amongst his people. So the problem is, how does a sinful people live with a holy God? Have a look at the Ten Commandments. Chapter 20. Why should the people keep them? And what is the significance of these commandments? What do we learn about God? I wonder if you ever had to learn the Ten Commandments by rote. I didn't, and I sort of wish I did. I wonder if you did, and I'd be surprised, or or rather I wouldn't be surprised if some people have learned the Ten Commandments and missed out the most important part. And that's verses 1 and 2, 2 and 3. Because they provide, if you like, the oxygen to breathe for the commandments. This is the setting, this is the context for the commandments, and it's a context of rescue. I am Yahweh who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Their motivation, therefore, you see, is not to earn a place into God's good books by being good. Their motivation is because they are to be grateful for what God has already done by writing them into his good books. They didn't deserve to be there. They were a rum bunch. But God brought them out on eagle's wings because he's faithful to his promises. The covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's faithful to that, and therefore he's going to rescue them, and therefore they are safe, they belong to him, he loves them, they're to love him in response. We're not saved by works, but for works, and it has never been different. Please, I want, if there's one thing you take away from today, it is this. Do not think that the Old Testament is God's plan A that went wrong, so he had to send Jesus as his plan B. Many people think like that, but it is completely not what the Bible says. We're not saved by the law in the Old Testament and grace in the New. It's by grace from first to last. And the law is a gift of grace to those who have graciously been saved. And it's always been like that. Now, of course, there are complications, there are qualifications, there are issues. It's a big deal. But please grasp this. Jesus is not plan B. And the law is not a plan A that failed, neither of which fits with the sort of God who's revealed himself so far, do they? What does the law reveal about God? Well, his perfect standards reveal something about him. Take adultery. Why not commit adultery? Because adultery is about breaking a covenant, and God doesn't do that. So nor should his people. Theft is about not trusting God to provide, and so on and so forth. They reflect what God is like. Now, the next three and a half books of the Bible go on. They they expand on these laws. They give uh, more details and so on. And Moses spends a lot of time up the mountain with God and hearing all kinds of different things. And they basically reveal what it means to be holy. In other words, to be set apart for God, to be different from the world around, to live for the God who is saved. God's primary purpose, therefore, for his people is not happiness, but holiness. Pursue happiness... And it's almost guaranteed you'll end up in an unholy mess. Pursue holiness in gratitude to God, and there is true joy. 
That'll affect what we pray for, won't it? As I said, there's still the problem of sin. The fact that we are sinful and that this is in, stands in the way of our relationship with God. Because my sin makes me want not to do what God wants. That's what I want. I want to rebel. That is what I want. I love it. So what's going to happen? Well, that's what the tabernacle is all about. The tabernacle is God's means to living amongst his people while preserving his integrity as a holy God and dealing with the fact that they are sinful. And so this is why you have the Day of Atonement, the Holy of Holies. The way to God's access, uh, to access to God is through um, the killing of, uh, uh, of um, an animal. Do you remember the principle of one death in place of another? Substitution It's all there. And basically, it's saying that, yeah, the punishment for sin is death. I mean, you cut yourself off from the creator of life. What do you expect? But God says, I'll provide another way, a substitute. And on the Day of Atonement, when one man, at one moment, on one day in a year, is allowed to go into the presence of God on the behalf of the whole people, but you see, the irony is, yes, God is at the center of the camp, and that's what that picture of the bottom right illustrates. The tabernacle's at the center of the camp, but actually, in many ways, at the same time as saying, yeah, I am with you, it's also saying there is a giant no-entry sign, isn't there? Yeah, God is with us, but we can't get very close. Something needs to happen. And the sin of the people is illustrated by the story of the golden calf, isn't it? They make this thing while Moses is up there with God, and they disobey. I don't think they're worshipping other gods, because they're not that stupid. You know, Aaron gets up and says, look, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. They're not suddenly saying someone else takes the credit. No, their sin was not to worship another god, but to worship him the wrong way. God said, do not make an image. But they make an image. There's a reason why he said don't make an image. We've already talked about it this morning. Because we are the image of God. You don't need anything else. No image that we make can come anything close to the miracle of a human life. You know, from the neurons to the blood vessels to the psychic, everything. We are in the image of God. You don't need to make something else. That's a pale, pale, pathetic reflection. God has said, worship me like this. They didn't. And that hints of what's to come. The book of Numbers and I've showed some photographs of the deserts. It's pretty inhospitable. For 40 years, they wander through this, led by God, and it's grim. And they don't trust him to keep his promises. That's why they're not allowed to go into the land. They send out the spies, and they're terrified. They've forgotten that you can trust this God. And so when you get to the book of Deuteronomy, literally, it's the second law. That's what deuteros nomos means in Greek. It's a Greek name for this book. It's not the Hebrew name, but it's an apt name, deuteros nomos, the second law. It's not that there's a new law, but it's take two, the next generation. Not even Moses is allowed to enter the land, but this is what uh, he says. And Deuteronomy is effectively like a collection of last-minute sermons before he pops his clogs. This is what he says. The Lord spoke to you out of a fire. You heard the sound of his words and saw no form. There was a voice. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow. And the Lord directed me at the time to teach you the decrees and laws you are to follow in the land that you're crossing to Jordan to possess. How are they going to do it? Because God gives it to them. The heart of Deuteronomy is remember. Remember. Remember what God has done. How you live has consequences. If you live within the covenant, all my blessings will come upon you. 
if you reject the covenant, there will be curses. Well, of course, as you say, if you reject the Lord of life, why do you expect to be able to live? He's the one who invented life. If you reject the one who gave you the land, then why do you expect to be able to live in it? After Egypt, Moses and Israel are God's people. And they truly are a nation. Mount Sinai was like, if you like, their sort of formal declaration of nationhood. Before they'd just been a ragtag bunch of slaves. Now they are a nation. So God's promises to Abraham really are beginning to look like something significant, aren't they? This is a people. God's place, well, God lives with his people in the tabernacle. But the tabernacle in itself is a mixed thing because it, on the other hand, says you can't get close. And the law and the covenant deepen our understanding of the nature of what it is to live under God as in control and sovereign.